came Cool Books, episode 23, as a compass needle is drawn to the pole. In a couple of chapters which close the Volvanger section, Silver Guillotine and The Witches, Lyra's fears will be realized and her hopes fulfilled. Mrs. Coulter intervenes in both. Her re-entry into the story is brief but decisive. It's at the critical moment when Lyra's disguise falls away and her mother recognizes her that she also saves her. Mrs. Coulter does so only to attempt immediately to deceive and steal her anew. Lyra sees through it this time and escapes, of course, but it's a close call. Following the goose demon's advice, Lyra and the others go back into the station for now after the fire drill. Ducking under her wolverine hood, Lyra still must stand out in her authentic furs, but she manages to avoid detection from the only person who matters. The other adults seem totally overwhelmed by Mrs. Coulter's arrival, and most of them have proved quite incurious anyway. The crisis is coming. She knows she won't be able to hide from her forever. But before she figures out what to say to Mrs. Coulter when the time comes, Lyra prepares by first hiding her furs where she can get them easily. She takes advantage of the disorder and uses the information Roger had provided, hurrying back to her room, stuffing her gear into the ceiling. And as an afterthought, she took the alethiometer from her pouch and hid it in the inmost pocket of the anorak before shoving that through too. So we have concealments within concealments here. I think the line of thinking on Lyra's part to take the alethiometer and hide it isn't buried too deeply. Her fear and hatred of Mrs. Coulter has been particularly bound up with the golden monkey demon and in turn his invasions of her privacy and specifically of the secret of the alethiometer. Still more secret though at this point is her ability to read it and so she needs to conceal that too. For now she'll continue to play dumb, reiterating to Pan that they must keep pretending to be stupid for their disguise to hold out as long as possible. Then we get the explanation. Because Lyra now realized, if she hadn't done so before, that all the fear in her nature was drawn to Mrs. Coulter as a compass needle is drawn to the pole. This image is a kind of inversion of her fascination with the north, dust, the northern lights, we must remember how Miss Coulter has been associated with warmth and the South. Think of the tropical photo and the stifling warmth of Bolvanger. It also suggests, as will be reinforced again later, that fear and indeed any powerful emotion must have a physics to it, a kind of magnetism in this case. Later, the same fear will have a quantum of pain. In an extreme statement of her aversion, Lyra thinks she can cope with even the thought of intercision, but not with Mrs. Coulter. And perhaps she's right. But she cheers herself again by turning her mind confidently to thinking of rescue and the Egyptians. And Lyra's not alone. All the kids' talk is of Mrs. Coulter, though they have neither the truth about intercision nor the clear hope of rescue. They do have their representative stories of deception, disillusionment, and fear. Into this mix, Lyra interjects a new thought, sharing the secret plan to rally around. In a slight overstatement, she declares that it's all organized. That might have been true in a sense when the Egyptians first set out, 
but the specifics of the escape are hardly worked out. The main thing, though, not so much the details of the plan, but the fact that there is one, that it's a secret. That monkey, he's the worst. He caught my carossa and nearly killed her. I could feel all week. They were as frightened as Lyra was. She found Annie and the others and sat down. Listen, she said, can you keep a secret? Yeah. The three faces turned to her, vivid with expectation. There's a plan to escape, Lyra said quietly. There's some people coming to take us away, right? And they'll be here in about a day, maybe sooner. What we all got to do is be ready as soon as the signal goes and get our cold weather clothes and once and run out. No waiting about. You just got to run. Only if you don't get your anoraks and boots and stuff, you'll die of cold. What's the signal? Annie demanded. The fire bell, like this afternoon. It's all organized. All the kids are going to know, and none of the grown-ups. Especially not her. We get a kind of graph next of the shifting mood among the children. That their fear uh, has overtaken their eagerness for play, and in turn is now being taken over by the purpose uh, suggested by Lyra. She marvels at the effect hope could have. And that's the same effect that hope had had on Lyra herself when she turned her mind to the Egyptians a moment earlier. At this point, Mrs. Coulter herself passes by. The narrator mimics the impression she conveys, evoking the false reality she reads into the world around her. Mrs. Coulter herself was briefly visible, looking in and smiling at the happy children with their hot drinks and their cake, so warm and well-fed. A little shiver ran almost instantaneously through the whole canteen, and every child was still and silent, staring at her. Mrs. Coulter smiled and passed on without a word. Little by little, the talk started again. So, the kids don't panic or revolt, they fall silent, no one gives away the game. Annie informs Lyra of where Mrs. Coulter is likely headed, to the conference room behind the front desk where Annie was taken to be a prop in a lecture, demonstrating the distance she could go from a demon being subjected to hypnotism. She's a kind of foil for Lyra, who has had to test the same thing, but in the sledge depot yard, not in the test facility, and who had been present at meetings of adults more than once, but on her own initiative, not as a mere specimen. Annie shows a real insight into the staff, though, pointing out how they're scared just as much as the kids, and with good reason. The subdued emergency that they can tell is going on must be their belated discovery of the severed demons missing from their cages. The chronology, as at many points, becomes a little vague here, but it's sometime between uh, sewing uh, exercise, supper, playtime in the lounge, a big shabby room with board games and a few tattered books and a table tennis table. That adjective shabby is reminiscent of Jordan College. At any rate, eventually Lyra has to take her roommates into her confidence. If Lizzie Brooks' sudden personality change hadn't been remarked upon them before, uh, it's unmistakable once Lyra declares her intention to go up into the ceiling crawl space and spy. And that this bold decisiveness is her true nature is proved in the demon staring contest, 
that ensues between Pan and Annie's Carillion. The two demons were staring at each other, Pantalaimon as a wildcat, Annie's Carillion as a fox. They were quivering. Pantalaimon uttered the lowest, softest hiss and bared his teeth, and Carillion turned aside and began to groom himself unconcernedly. All right, then, said Annie, resigned. It was quite common for struggles between children to be settled by their demons in this way, with one accepting the dominance of the other. Their humans accept the outcome without resentment on the whole, so Lyra knew that Annie would do as she asked. It's a uh, revealing yet another way in which the severing of human and demon then would undermine full potential flourishing, though it also suggests the superficial peace, cessation of struggle, the prevention of conflict and potential for hurt feelings that the oblation board is accomplishing among its oblates. In a variation on the hiding and clothing motif taken from Genesis 3 and reinforced a couple of times already in this chapter, the kids agree to help cover for Lyra's absence, piling up articles of their clothing to pad out her bed as she goes climbing into the ceilings. By the eerie light coming up from below through the tiles, she carefully sets out. She was crouching in a narrow metal channel supported in a framework of girders and struts. The panels of the ceilings were slightly translucent, so some light came up from below. And in the faint gleam, Lyra could see this narrow space, only two feet or so in height, extending in all directions around her. It was crowded with metal ducts and pipes, and it would be easy to get lost in. But provided she kept to the metal and avoid putting any weight on the panels, and as long as she made no noise, she should be able to go from one end of the station to the other. It's just like back in Jordan Pen, she whispered, looking in the retiring room. If you hadn't done that, none of this would have happened whispered back. Then it's up to me to undo it, isn't it? So it's reminiscent also of the epigraph for the book, which is taken from Paradise Lost, where he fiend sets out on his journey. Um, and in what sense is this just like Jordan or what do they mean none of this would have happened without her doing that? And in what sense is it up to Lyra to undo it? What's done can't be undone. From the moment that they hid in the retiring room, Lyra and Pan realized that the only way was forward. Wouldn't Asriel's death have emboldened Mrs. Coulter just the same as his captivity does, if not more so? Uh, that is, if she hadn't prevented him being poisoned that, uh, that night. So wouldn't Mrs. Coulter still have come and, and gotten Lyra and, uh, well, possibly, I suppose, without Lyra knowing what she did, she wouldn't have tried as hard to escape from Mrs. Coulter. But surely she'd have figured it out eventually. Well, anyway, her sense of responsibility seems to be the main thing. Even if she is working out some destiny, that she acts as if what she does matters is the decisive point. Indeed, the very nature of the destiny. The difficult journey in the dark, balancing on the narrow, sharp edges, 
getting all dusty, with her trusty furs to guide back, all looks like a microcosm or an emblem of the adventure as a whole. And that, in turn, a story about growing up. As she was on the rooftops at Jordan, Lyra is literally above it all. Only now she moves with a weightier purpose. The voices from below, from cooks and nurses, she hears nothing interesting there to her until she comes to a section of panels lit evenly and a murmur of male adult voices. She knows it's the right place. The clink of dinner reminds us of the cocktail party as well as the retiring room we've already been thinking of. She's successfully spied both places out before, but the stakes now are even higher. Partly, the heightened tension is owing to the escaped demons. Mrs. Coulter down there is reaming the men out, but the senior staff hold their own. To each of her questions and accusations, they have a response ready. She says they didn't work. They say, with respect, they did, Mrs. Coulter speaking of the automatic mechanisms to prevent this sort of thing happening. She says the alarm didn't go off, and they say it did. Unfortunately, it rang when everyone was outside taking part in the fire drill. And unfortunately, both alarms are on the same circuit. That's a design fault that will have to be rectified. Right. And uh, even ask a question of their own. Had you considered that it might have been done by a child? showing that they are actually on the right track. Um, McKay, we're told, the research uh, student in charge of the demon cages, McKay entered the code in the ordinator. That's an anglicism for the French word for computer. So it looks like they have some sort of information technology in Lyra's world, at least for codes on doors and things like that. Between the design fault of having the fire alarm and cage alarm on the same circuit and Mrs. Coulter's unexpected day-early arrival and her demands to see all the staff at once, the uh, scientists put up a decent fight. To her insinuations of a traitor among the staff, they point out that as they were released during the fire drill, it might have been done by a child, for all the adults had their tasks and all those tasks were done. Now, presumably, those tasks were something more than just blowing a whistle and yelling at kids for snowball fighting. Uh, they don't go into great detail. Um, but again, they're not wrong. It was someone from outside, and it was a child, though they have no particular suspects. They do not consider, of course, that it could have been witches or Egyptians, much less the most wanted person in England, that's not within the realm of possibility for them. Um, and finally, Mrs. Coulter relents. She doesn't want to hear any more about their investigation, suggesting only one more angle to Dr. Cooper and the others after this lapse, <laughs> that it could have been those fearsome Tartars. But he says, no, they keep meticulous records. And we finally turn to a safer subject with one last condescending condemnation I'm sure you're doing your very best she said well there we are a great pity but enough of that for now tell me about the new separator 
Myra felt a thrill of fear. There was only one thing this could mean. Now, as talk turns to their new separator, it seems that the English and the Magisterium are far from the first people to separate humans and demons. They may be the most scientific, the coldest, intentionally trying to improve their methods rather than relying on traditional ones. Whereas in the past, many died from the shock, so that in one of the doctor's opinions, the Skraylings did it better by hand, eventually they have made a breakthrough. This anesthesia combined with the Maistat Amberic Scalpel. That was referred to obliquely as the Maistat process by Dr. Lancelius. Apparently it's reduced the rate of death to below 5%, and presumably has also led to them needing to discharge fewer of their operators from stress-related anxiety. Don't know quite what the discharge would entail, but it can't have been pleasant for them. Um, still, far from exulting in the march of scientific progress, Lyra's agitation is almost uncontrollable. Lyra was trembling. The blood was pounding in her ears, and Pantalaimon was pressing his ermine fur form against her side and whispering, Hush, Lyra, they won't do it. We won't let them do it. And as they're talking, still more alarming, it appears that this latest discovery is one made by Lord Azriel himself. And we can see it for ourselves in the back material of the 10th anniversary editions, which include an appendix. Um, what that says is that these are some papers from the library at Jordan College. These papers were discovered among the effects of an anonymous scholar after his death in Oxford. They were sent for auction with all his other books and papers, and it was only after they were bought by Mr. Ian Beck, the artist, that their significance was recognized and their origin understood to be outside this universe. How they arrived here is still a mystery. It is possible that there exist wormholes or doorways opening from one universe into another, and that somewhere in the Oxford of this world there is such an opening into the library of a college in another Oxford entirely. If that is the case, there may be many other such items in this world still awaiting discovery. It's the same kind of thing that goes on in um, Lyra's Oxford. Um, in this case, the paper in question reads, Manganese, manganese and titanium, but in what proportion? In Sheffield, I saw a new development of the Hadfield process. 65 to 68 percent manganese, 16 to 21 percent silica, remainder carbon, smelted with coke and a quartz flux. They had tried tungsten without success, never encountered titanium. Melting point manganese, 2,271 degrees. Titanium, something a little less than 3,070. The stamp reads, Jordan College Library. Jordan College Library. The next page goes on. Donated by, from the papers of, is the stamp and written in a bold hand, Lord Asriel. Another stamp from Jordan College, but then it goes on. 
The manganese nodules gathered by the divers in the Simida Strait, Sanda Straits, I can't read that one. I saw a great collection of them in the Sultan's house. I asked what they were used for, and he said straight-faced, quote, ritual purposes, quote. Can't tell one's host he's a barefaced liar. They were used for something industrial, some manufacturing process. And goes on, but maybe we'll have to wait for another book to fill in more of that story. Um, now, despite Lord Asriel's contribution, which might have other implications the scholars don't know about or aren't interested in just now, Mrs. Coulter is unimpressed. Asriel is, to say the least, persona non grata. He's not just exiled and imprisoned, he is now under suspended sentence of death. As she says, one of the conditions of his exile in Svalbard was that he give up his philosophical work entirely. Unfortunately, he managed to obtain books and materials, and he's pushed his heretical investigations to the point where it's positively dangerous to let him live. And that gets the scholar's attention, but... Uh, they go on, and uh, it sounds like, in the context of what's just been said about the execution pending for Lord Asriel, this new instrument, described as a kind of guillotine, I suppose you could say, um, that this fits in beautifully. It's an instrument not of political or social revolution, like the guillotines in the French Revolution, um, it's not uh, going to contribute to mass deaths of nobles and political uh, enemies um, to go along with all of the mass deaths of religious wars and witch hunts and crusades, which could also perhaps be leveled at the feet of the church. But this new instrument promises to be much more selective than the latter, and much more hygienic than the former. Um, it is one Mrs. Coulter is keen to see in action, it sounds like. Um, and she wants to see all the children to find out what they know. But even she gets tired after so much excitement, and she bids the scientists a good night. At once, the remaining men debrief congratulating one another on their damage control, speculating on Lord Asriel's intentions, the experiments he might do with dust, sniping at their boss out of her hearing, they hope, and even sympathizing with Lord Asriel, uh, fellow thinkers operating outside the sufferance of the church, but not going so far as to uh, sympathize with the children. And they call Mrs. Coulter's interest in the research ghoulish, not philosophical, personally interested. It isn't clear which is the worst epithet in their book. Though in different terms, they're describing the same thing the kids all seem to sense about Mrs. Coulter, her personal interest in them, from the kidnapping through to whatever it is that happens to them at Bolvanger that she wants to see, which makes her at once so irresistibly alluring and so chillingly sadistic. At this point, Lyra's dread becomes overpowering. 
But do you remember the first experiments when she was so keen to see them pulled apart? Lyra couldn't help it. A little cry escaped her. And at the same time, she tensed and shivered, and her foot knocked against the stanchion. What's that? So, the men respond almost too quickly. It's almost unfair. It goes like this. In the ceiling, quick. The sound of chairs being thrown aside, feet running, a table pulled across the floor. Lyra tried to scramble away, but there was so little space. And before she could move more than a few yards, the ceiling panel beside her was thrust up suddenly, and she was looking into the startled face of a man. She was close enough to see every hair in his mustache. He was as startled as she was, but with more freedom to move, he was able to thrust a hand into the gap and seize her arm. A child! Don't let her go. So, every hair on his head echoes the gospel, and uh, they contend fiercely here, Lyra biting the man, not letting go, even when she draws blood. This is rather different than when the scholars used to catch her back at Jordan. And then she doesn't let go of the ceiling strut, even when she is pulled halfway into the room and is hanging upside down, half fallen, until they do something even more unfair. She hooked her legs over the sharp edge of the metal above and struggled upside down, scratching, biting, punching, spitting in passionate fury. The men were gasping and grunting with pain or exertion, but they pulled and pulled, and suddenly all the strength went out of her. It was as if an alien hand had reached right inside where no hand had a right to be, and wrenched at something deep and precious. She felt faint, dizzy, sick, disgusted, limp with shock. One of the men was holding Pantalaimon. And we hear here that uh, he uh, is in his wildcat shape, his fur now dull with weakness, now sparking glints of anbaric alarm. He curved toward his lyra as she reached with both hands for him. They fell still. They were captured. She felt those hands. It wasn't allowed. Not supposed to touch. Wrong. So in lots of ways you can see the grammar of this sentence is starting to break down. Um, from the first one, um, after the scientist's exclamation, quick, the sound of chairs, that sentence doesn't seem to be quite complete. It's fragmentary. Even more so those last few where after the, uh, uh, the action you get these kind of partial... Uh, sentences um, separated by ellipses, and then finally just the one word, wrong. Um, the uh, felt wrongness here is attached in the strongest terms, not just to the men's violence of the, the physical struggle, but to sexual violence. This is a kind of rape for the man to hold Pan in this way is an abuse of power at once personally shattering and morally devastating. The men carry on as if this is just a more urgent bit of damage control. Dismissing the idea of getting Mrs. Coulter involved at this stage when Lyra could tell her 
what she overheard after Mrs. Coulter had left, the scientists determined to take drastic action right away. In an extension of what we see already, their reasoning is the shock will prevent her talking. Myra already is unable to speak with her shock at simply having them hold pantomime, and so apparently in terms of separation, that would be extended indefinitely. Um, the build-up here is, is harrowing. Myra um, couldn't speak. She could hardly breathe. She had to let herself be carried through the station, along em white, empty corridors, past rooms humming with anbaric power, past the dormitories where children slept with their demons on the pillow beside them, sharing their dreams. And every second of the way, she watched Pantalaimon, and he reached for her, and their eyes never left each other. Then a door which opened by means of a large wheel, a hiss of air, and a brilliantly lit chamber with dazzling white tiles and stainless steel. The fear she felt was almost a physical pain. It was a physical pain as they pulled her and Pantalaimon over toward a large cage of pale silver mesh, above which a great pale silver blade hung poised to separate them forever and ever. That connection between demons and embaric power, brought up a moment ago with the sparking of Pan's fur, is reinforced here with the juxtaposition of the rooms humming with embaric power and the dormitories where children and their demons slept, um, dreaming. It will be uh, reinforced again here when we hear it uh, likening Pan to a spark of lightning. Um, in the dazzling white, in the pale silver, in the scream that Lyra finally can let out, um, Pan does escape. And so, to the end, even in their defeat, we must admire and respect Lyra and Pan more than ever, and hate and despise her captors. Even in Extremis, Lyra does not descend to striking their demons, unless in the anguished question she asks of them, Why? Why are you doing this? Help us. You shouldn't be helping them. Shortly after that, that she gets free too, and the two of them uh, embrace Pantalaimon sprang toward her like a spark of lightning. She clutched him to her fierce breast, and he dug his wild cat claws into her flesh, and every stab of pain was dear to her. Never, 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 she cried, and backed against the wall to defend him to their death. So something more than an embrace, really, almost a, a rejoining um, right before the imminent separation that seems to be unavoidable at this point. And then, as the blade is rising, slowly catching the brilliant light, a light musical voice, her voice, comes in. What is going on here? What are you doing? And who is this child? She didn't complete the word child because in that instant she recognized Lyra. 
Through tear-blurred eyes, Lyra saw her totter and clutch at a bench. Her face, so beautiful and composed, grew in a moment haggard and horror-struck. So at the last moment, she feels is the worst by far, Lyra is spared. But it's complicated because the deliverer is the person she dreads the most. Perhaps, though, something does change in this moment for Mrs. Coulter. She didn't complete the word child because she recognized Lyra. It's, it seems as though her concept of child and her personal interest in Lyra finally overwhelm whatever it was that had been um, causing her to act up to this point. Uh, causing her to rethink, reconfigure those concepts um, that motivated her less than philosophical interest. If that's so, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but in this moment, she and her demon pull Lyra out of the ages. Actually, it's only the golden monkey who helps. He darted from her side in a flash and tugged Pantalaimon out of the mesh cage as Lyra fell out herself. Pantalaimon pulled free of the monkey's solicitous paws and stumbled to Lyra's arms. Never, never, she breathed into his fur and he pressed his beating heart to hers. They clung together like survivors of a shipwreck shivering on a desolate coast. So, the close of this chapter is Mrs. Coulter once again taking Lyra to bed, as we saw so long ago, and her asking, My dear, dear child, however did you come to be here? A question which it's taken us the whole book to find out the answer to. Um, if it hadn't been so before, we are associated very closely here with Mrs. Coulter as readers, observers of all of this story. And so, for our own sake, we better hope that Mrs. Coulter has had some drastic change come over <laughs> in this moment. Uh, we'll have to see. Now, on to recess. This week, for the imaginary video game adaptation. Of course, there's board games and table tennis to play in the big shabby room, but we can also maybe get into the multiplayer mode of the imaginary video game a bit more. I think we've already thrown out some ideas about the main player's mode in which one plays as Lyra while another plays as Pan, and that that's optional, of course, so a single player could still enjoy the game with the AI taking care of the rest. But I think it would be really cool to allow for those points in the game when another character joins Lyra's party, like Yorick, Kaisa, Roger, to have the player or players be able to switch over to control this other character, too. That's the classic sense of multiplayer, then in which more than one human player is playing the game at once. But there's another sense, too, taking it a little further, in which you get to play 
as different playable characters with different storylines. It's almost multi-game, and you can do this because it's just imaginary. It adds a great deal of replayability to a game to have this kind of function. It also, of course, would add an incredible amount of time to the design and programming and cost. We thankfully don't have to worry about any of that just now, since we're only at the stage of brainstorming and sketching out ideas. So I've suggested that the player get to see vignettes from other playable characters' perspectives on the story that Pullman actually tells, as well as getting to see some of those that he hints at taking place somewhere in the background of his world. More than just seeing these take place, I think it would be great if you could play through them. We've mentioned Egyptian campaigns of years past, and Fartacorum's rescue of Serafina Pekala, or his journeys to the continent. In the Bolfanger chapters, we've toyed with the idea of playing as Annie and her friends before they met Lizzie slash Lyra, who's mysteriously deposited into their midst one night. Or you could take the role of Bridget McGinn from that point of departure in the story she tells, so like and unlike Lyra of hiding in the linen room with Tony Macarios on his last day of complete existence. There's a little echo of her in that description of the children, uh, their faces vivid. Um, I think that same adjective is used of her. Now, so far, these have all been protagonists, and I don't know that they should be terribly difficult to unlock. At least a few should automatically prompt you with the choice of playing through their stories when they come up in the course of the main storyline, and then if you choose, you can replay or revisit them later on. You can do your demon flying V with Kaisa and the fledglings rescued from their cages. It could be fun to do it right at that moment, but it could also be distracting if you wanted to just focus on getting through Bolvanger with Lyra. So you shouldn't be obligated to go too far with it. But this sort of side quest appeals to the player the more interesting thing might be to get to play as the antagonists, such as the hapless research assistant McKay here, who discovers to his horror that the demons he was responsible for locking up after, after what exactly? What experiments are they cooking up with these poor creatures in that squat square room apart? Those demons, anyway are missing. And he hustles back down the corridor. Um, it must be a tunnel, an underground one, apparently, since it isn't visible as a hump in the snow to the kids outside. Who knows how much of Bolvanger is concealed underground? And then trying to do his damage control, preparing his bosses before they have to confront Mrs. Coulter. So something like that. Um, Obviously, playing as the major antagonists, such as Mrs. Coulter herself, would throw a completely different spin on the story and events. I think that would be something that would have to be fairly difficult to unlock.
and probably shouldn't be possible until after this turning point in the action. Um, anyway, that's what I've got for this week. I hope that you guys have some ideas that you'll send in, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you. Till next week, take care.